Your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28, and if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 710. As you find Isaiah chapter 28, let me orientate you to this time period uh, that this section of the Bible comes from. Isaiah was a prophet, and when we say that, what we mean by that is that he was someone who received messages from God uh, to pass on to the people. He lived and spoke in the 8th century before the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, under King David, under King Solomon, there was one united country, but by this time in history, it had divided into two nations. Uh, Israel in the north, if you look at the right-hand picture, the green bit, and Judah in the sort of the brown bit in the south. And the, uh, the, the capital city of, uh, the, of Israel, called Ephraim in our text, uh, is Samaria. And uh, the capital city of Judah, of course, is Jerusalem in the south. And the great political challenge of the day, if you look at the map on the left-hand side there, is uh, the, the empire of Assyria sort of the territory that would be sort of northern Iraq into Turkey today, that territory. Well, Assyria was the superpower, and it was an aggressive superpower, and it was looking to expand its borders through uh, aggressive armies, conquering the lands, and that was the big threat. And the big issue that um, is being faced at, at the time that Isaiah is writing and speaking is where would the nation of Judah, that little territory in the south, where would that nation of Judah put its trust and confidence in the light of this huge political tsunami that was about to break upon them as Assyria threatened to attack? Where would they look for their refuge? Would they look to God or would they look to put their confidence elsewhere? That's kind of the big political background as we come to this chapter. Now let me just set it in its literary context. We're coming to a new section in the book of Isaiah. We've looked in previous years at earlier sections, but this is a discrete section of Isaiah from chapter 28 to chapter 33. Isaiah pronounces six woes, six laments, six warnings to the nation. Uh, let's just give a little taste of them. So uh, turn over to chapter 29, verse 1. Uh, Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Referring to Jerusalem. Uh, look over to chapter 30, beginning of chapter 30. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine. Forming an alliance, but not by my spirit. Heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me. Who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. We'll turn over to chapter 31, beginning of chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots. And in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So that's the, the context of where we're at, what we're going to be over the coming weeks. So turn back to chapter 28. And as I read this chapter, uh, 
I want you to see that Isaiah is really addressing the rulers of the kingdom in the south, the kingdom of Judah. And, and he's actually beginning, the first 13 verses relate to Israel in the north, Ephraim. And he's describing to the leaders in the south how bad things have got in the north. And he wants to show them the repercussions of what happens when you follow their tactics. And then from verse 14 onwards, he's then turning to apply that, uh, that lesson to the people in Judah, right? So that's the orientation. And let's read. Let me read this to you. Isaiah chapter 28. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading, that fading flower his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley will be like a fig ripe before harvest. As soon as someone sees it and takes it in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer, they stagger when seeing visions, they stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Who is it? He's trying to teach. To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast. For it is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then, the word of the Lord to them will become, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backwards, be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we have, become, we have an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. 
the one who trusts will never be dismayed. I'll make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you'll be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and harrowing the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Let's take the opportunity of praying again. Father, we come before you now, knowing that you are the Almighty Lord, wonderful in counsel, magnificent in wisdom. Father, many of these words and ideas seem strange to us. They're so far back in the past, and so yet we come to you now and ask that you would speak to us through your living word, that we may understand its meaning, that you would give us hearts that are willing to hear and obey. In Christ's precious name, amen. Essentially, there are two refuges being contrasted in this section. Uh, The leaders of the southern kingdom of Judah are being asked to weigh up. Where are they going to put their confidence? Is it going to be the solid ground that God offers? Or the sinking sands of what the world offers? And although these words are spoken into a specific historical context... This is fundamentally the same choice that faces you and me today. Where are we going to put our confidence? On what are we going to build our lives? Are we going to build it on the solid ground of God's word and his promises? Or are we going to be looking to the shifting sands of this world? The problem that we have is 
that uh, what I've called the shifting sands of this world looks so much more solid to us than the promises of God. And so we're always tempted to to go with uh, what the world says is tangibly true rather than the promises of God that sometimes can seem just a little, well, remote to us. But nevertheless, that is the challenge today. On what are we building our lives? On what are we building our church? Well, I want to just point out, first of all, the the solid ground. And the solid ground is in verse 16. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. See what God is doing here? He's giving uh, them a promise, a promise to the people that there can be a solid base upon which they can build their life. Do you see that? God is personally going to do something in Jerusalem, in Zion. In that capital city, God is going to do something significant. See, I lay a stone in Zion. And from this point on, in a sense, uh, the the eyes of of the world should be looking to Jerusalem. What is going to happen in Jerusalem? How is God going to come and do something foundational in Jerusalem upon which we can put our feet, the solid ground that we can put our lives on, that we can rest our church on, that we can put our hopes and dreams on? What is that? Because God says what he's going to lay there is, is something that is precious to him, that will be the cornerstone of all that he's going to do in the world and in history. Everything else in God's purposes are going to be built on this precious cornerstone. And this stone will be the foundation, the sure foundation, the only solid thing that we're going to be able to uh, build our lives on, build our dreams on, build our hopes on, build a church on. There will be a day of judgment that will sweep in. Isaiah is clear to them about that, isn't he? Um, Verse 22. Stop your mocking. The Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against this whole land. The judgment will sweep in. But here is a great solid promise for people to build their lives on. The one who trusts, verse 16, in this precious cornerstone will never be dismayed. When the judgment rolls in, if you have your feet on this stone, you will never be put to shame. You will never be dismayed. Now, if we had a you know, we're going to work through Isaiah over the coming years. Uh, it's going to take a while before we get to chapter 53. But as you read on, you can discover this stone. It's a, it's a metaphor of a, of a person described as the servants. And this servant is one who is going to be rejected by the people. And yet God is declared to be the, the precious one, the servant in whom he delights, the one on whom he puts his spirit. And this servant is going to... Uh, <clears throat> within Jerusalem is going to be the suffering servant. The one who's going to look like he's rejected by God. 
who looks like he's going to be the one who uh, is cursed by God. But through that cursing, God is going to bring salvation. The sins of his people will be removed. Uh, the, The diseases of their rebellion against God will be healed by this suffering servant. Now, if you've been... Uh, with us over the last few months, you know that we've been looking through the, the, the letter of First Peter. And First uh, Peter makes it explicitly clear who we're talking about here. As he says, all of these ancient promises written 800 years before the coming of Christ are all pointing to Christ. And so First Peter chapter 2, he says this, As you come to him, as you come to Jesus Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, and then it quotes this very verse from Isaiah 28, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame so 800 years or 700 plus years before uh, Jesus comes God makes this promise that he's going to do something highly significant in fact he's going to come in human flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to put something foundational within history upon which we can build our lives it's going to be the only solid thing that we can build our lives upon And, and, and upon this precious cornerstone upon this foundation that is Jesus Christ, he's going to build a new people, a new temple, a new way of relating to God, the only way of relating to God. And this is exactly what Jesus taught himself uh, at the end of his most famous sermon. You'll remember before we did First Peter, we did the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it was read to us earlier, wasn't it, by uh, Liam how Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The wise person who listens to Jesus and puts his words into practice is like the the wise man who builds his house upon the the rock. And so when the storms of difficulty, when the storms of judgment come, it will not fall down. But the foolish person, uh, the person who doesn't uh, put the words of Jesus into practice is like the man who builds his house on, on the sand. And so when the rain comes and the streams rise up and the wind blows in and beats on the house that house comes down with an almighty crash and so the question is where are you and I going to build our lives on this solid foundation that is the Lord Jesus Christ or are we going to put our confidence in the, uh, the sinking sands of this world That's what this ancient chapter is pressing in on us. Uh, If you've come along to Charlotte Chapel as someone who's not a Christian, then I I want you to know that the central message of Christianity is not moralism. It's not about morality, how to live a more moral life. It's not about therapy. It's not about how to have a happier life. The central message of the Christian faith is about salvation and rescue. And we're going to see in a moment our great problem is that we are rebel sinners before God. The way that we've all lived our lives falls short of the 
standards of God, of the glory of God. And a loving, holy God must punish and eradicate all sinners who do not repent. God will have to remove all evil. And there's a day coming, a day of judgment, when he'll do that. There is a coming storm of God's judgment. And the question is, where are you running to for your refuge? Now, there is only one place of refuge. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the precious cornerstone. He's the, he's the one who, through whose willing death upon the cross for our sins, made a way that our sins can be forgiven. He's the one who was raised from the dead. And if we rest in Christ, we have a sure foundation against the coming wrath of God. Now, yes, coming to Christ and following Christ is going to shape and change your morals. It's Actually, I think it, it's going to bring joy and, and, and wholeness to your life. But predominantly, the message of the Christian faith is this is the only way to be saved if you will find your refuge in Christ. We need to listen to what God has to say. See, I have laid a stone in Zion. This is what God has done in the world. He has sent his one and only son. Have you come to him and put your refuge and trust in him? Are you leaning on him? Are you resting in him? If not, although you might be clinging to things that you think are giving you support and refuge, they are just sinking sands. Now, as soon as you talk about, well, Jesus' death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, uh, that Jesus Christ is returning again, that there is, um, life is short, Eternity is long. That hell is real. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a hell to flee from. There's a heaven to gain. As soon as you talk about these eternal truths, then you're going to face mockery and scoffing. Oh, it's just pie in the sky when you die. Do you want to frighten me? Do you want to frighten me with your talk of a holy God? Who believes that? Now, that, that is the, the mockery and scoffing that we face today, and it was exactly the same in Isaiah's day. Isaiah was warning of, of the judgment that was coming upon them as Assyria was going to rush in. And, and, the, and here's their response, scoffing. Look at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. And who's scoffing? It's the rulers. It's the elite, those who rule this people in Jerusalem. Verse 22, um, now stop your mocking. Mockery and scoffing is as certain today as it was in Isaiah's day. He's warning them of, of God's judgment that was coming, but they're just scoffing and mocking. And so, while he's addressing the leaders of the southern kingdom, uh, who are mocking him for for his stance, Isaiah says, well, look at your northern uh, neighbors of Israel. Look at Ephraim, that was even more far gone in its arrogance and pride against God. See, they thought that they were on the solid ground of their own making, but it was only sinking sands. Look at verse 1. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on a head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the northern kingdom 
was trusting in its economic growth, its harvest, its productivity. And instead of thankfulness to God for all his blessings, instead of using his gifts in a way that honored him, they took the credit for all their wealth and their achievements, and they used their money to buy escapist pleasures. Here was a nation all about pride and drunkenness. And what's even more shocking is that the religious leaders were no different to the people. Verse 7 and 8. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. There's not a spot without filth. It's pretty pungent imagery, isn't it? Drunk on duty is a pretty serious charge for most professions. But it is especially shocking when you're supposed to be one of God's spokesmen or serving the needs of the people before God. So here in Ephraim was a culture so debased that even those who were supposed to be voices warning the people of their lost condition, just like everybody else, they are enmeshed in the same addictions, incapacitated by the same dissolution. These were the spiritual leaders, and yet they were living a lifestyle that was exactly the same as those around them. And Isaiah points out what every recovering alcoholic knows. You start by swallowing uh, wine or beer, but if you abuse it enough, it'll end up swallowing you and leaving you in a degraded pool of your own vomit. How does this come about? Well, notice with me that the pathology of this mockery. This debased way of life is linked with the mockery of God's words. That's what's going on in verses 9 and 10. This is some of the, the ways that they mocked the prophets who tried to proclaim God's word to them. Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast, for his do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. To, to them... The talk of the prophets warning them was all infantile baby talk. All right for toddlers, for Sunday school, but not to be taken seriously by those who'd moved on to a fuller grasp of reality. No, the message of the prophets just sounded like a nursery nonsense rhyme to them. They despised it. They didn't want a clear verbal revelation from God. They, did, they didn't want to hear preaching about God or holiness or judgment. No, they, 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 they just show their disdain by scoffing and mockery. And the truth is that these two things always go together. A rejection of God's words and a debasing of people's life and conduct. The two go together. Which comes first? It's hard to say. Often I wonder whether it's the seductiveness of just following the world's lifestyle, which then begins to make us want to, well, change God's words. We don't like what it has to say. And so we sort of decide, well, it's not all true. We don't have to accept all of it. And, and we start 
shifting that way. It can also be the other way around. In the medieval period, there was complete ignorance of God's word, and linked to that, there were great abuses uh, being done by the, uh, the clergy. But we see it today. As liberal theology takes hold of denominations, God's word is mocked or ignored. And then the next stage is what the Bible says is sinful behavior that is unacceptable. Well, it becomes acceptable and promoted. We see this over and over again. Uh, the language of liberal progressives is similar to that which Isaiah faced in his day. People are saying like this, uh, saying things like this. Well, we've moved on from this simplistic Sunday school view of the Bible. Why do you remain so stuck in the past? We need to move on from this talk of a, of a bloody cross and atonement from sins. Uh, we need to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying now to us through the culture and through our modern reason and sensibilities. We need to stop this childish talk of, of wrath and judgment. Um, you know, that it's, people don't want to hear that. It's not acceptable today. This has happened in different phases of church history. It happened over 100 years ago. It's sort of happening in a new wave again today. It's what's happening in the Church of Scotland. It's what's happening in the Church of England. Um, the Bible is pretty clear about sexual conduct. That sexual relationships are between a man and a woman in a, in a, in a committed relationship of marriage. And, and that all sex outside of that is wrong, that's, that's pretty clear what the Bible has to say. And, and yet, what we find now is just uh, growing voices of, of, of liberal reasoning says, well, we can't take this to be the, the fully the word of God. Oh, how, how infantile to think that. How foolish you are to think that. Oh, no, these are just some thoughts of people that they have about God, and we need to, we need to sift through it. To some bits, we move on beyond it, and we've transcended this, and we need to hear what God has to say today. And, 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 and then guess what? And exactly what the world wants to do is exactly what we think God is saying that we can do. It's all acceptable. It's all right. It can happen for churches and denominations can happen in our own lives we just want to follow exactly what everyone else is doing around us and so we find ways to just say well the bible yeah you know it's important to me but you know i'm not i've moved on i've grown up you know i find it inspiring but i don't think it's inspired and i can pick the bits that i want it's exactly what's going on today Well, like Isaiah, we need to realize this. We can live in an escapist world of our own pleasures, of our own imagination, but we will have to deal with the holy God who is there. There will be a, a wake-up moment because God is there and he is a holy God and he has spoken clearly. And God's judgment storm was coming against the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 2. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong. And by that, Isaiah is referring to the armies of Assyria. 
You see, the armies of Assyria, uh, they, they're going to come in and, and, and take all the best of the harvest and conquer this land for their own glory, for their own might. But actually, they don't know this. The reality is that behind all of that, the sovereign God is using them for his purposes. The Lord has one who is powerful and strong. Like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. This proud nation that is despising God's words will come hard and fast, smack up to face with the reality of the holy God who cannot be messed with. That flading flower, verse 4, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley will be a fig right before harvest. As soon as someone sees it and takes it in his hand, he swallows it up. All their economic assets will be swallowed up. All that they relied on will be taken away from them. And they'll be carted off into exile. And if all this... um, talk of God's word seems like baby talk to them, then they will hear God's word through foreign invaders and it'll sound like baby talk to them because they won't be able to hear and understand this invading army that's going to be all around them. Verse 11. Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. This This was God's invitation to them. Rest in me. But they didn't. They would not listen. Verse 13, So then the word of the Lord to them will become this. They will hear gobbledygook all around them as a foreign nation speaking a different tongue will conquer them. So where are we looking for refuge in this life? People do turn to all sorts of things today for refuge, don't they? Uh, looking at the, at the stats, the tragedy is that many do try to turn to alcohol to cope with their life. And we have real problems with drunkenness in our society, with alcohol addiction, as people lean on the bottle for support. Or people turn to drugs and, and lean on drugs to get them through life. Or people turn to um, sequential sexual relationships and just throw themselves into all sorts of escapist ways. We, we try and escape reality by just watching TV shows, box sets on Netflix. Just, just amusing ourselves to death because we don't want to deal with the reality of our lives, how messed up they are, and our brokenness. And we don't want to deal with the holy God who is there. And they're all useless refuges. They're all useless places to stand. They're useless. You know, alcohol and drugs and lots of relations are going to be useless. They're useless in this life, and they're useless in the life to come. There's no refuge from the wrath of God in these things. It's only in Christ. He is the only place where our sins can be forgiven, where we can be made right with God. Now, as I said at the beginning, these, these first sort of 13 verses are all, in a sense, an object lesson. As he, as he points to Ephraim, they're all an object lesson to cause the people in the south in Israel to wake up. You know, all that uh, 
Isaiah said would happen, did happen. Assyria did come in and uh, take over the land and conquered it. Uh, and in 722 BC, all the best of the, of the nation were carted off into exile. The northern kingdom was kind of wiped out. And as the, uh, as the leaders of the southern kingdom watch these events happening, Isaiah is saying, sober up. Get serious. See what happens when you mock God's words. Stop mocking God's word yourself. Now their mockery was a lot more subtle. They were still a very religious people in the south. They still had the temple. They kept the temple worship going. They, uh, they, they, they were religious. They, they, they had a, a lots of religion over the weekends. The problem with them was that when it came to their life and the rest of the week, God's word had no practical impact on their lives. The truth is that God's word made no difference to their lives. And in that way that they are, they're scoffing against God's words. Their confidence was everywhere else but in God's words. They didn't want all this religious talk of God laying a stone in Zion. They had real world practical problems and they needed real world practical solutions to what they faced and so they created their own refuge they decided to uh, make a stand depending on their own diplomacy and forming a political alliance with Egypt the other power to the south of them they were going to rely on the military might of Egypt and that looked to them much firmer than depending on God's word and provision and Isaiah just parodies their boast in verse 15 you boast. We have entered into a covenant with death. And with the grave, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. By making these political alliances, they think they've got a more solid refuge, a, a, a better place to hide from the oncoming, oncoming storm. But Isaiah warns them that they are utterly deluding themselves. The promise of help will prove to be lies, and there'll be no hiding place. What they thought was solid ground was just shifting sands. See, if they rely on their own strategies instead of God, then as it says in verse 17, their refuge will just be swept away. Their covenant with death will be annulled. When the scourge sweeps by, they'll be beaten down by it. Now, this is not a comforting message, is it? It's one of warning. It's one of invitation to repent and changing direction. God had, in the past, fought for them against his enemies. Verse 21, in Mount Perizim and in the Valley of Gibeon. But now he's going to do that alien, strange work. He's going to fight against them. So verse 22, stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against the land. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. Now even as God will give them over to their own folly... He wants them to know that there's still a redemptive purpose 
behind their experiences. For those who will stop mocking and start trusting him. And he gives this analogy, this parable of a farmer who uh, plows the fields and breaks up the hard soil. I don't know whether you've thought of this from the perspective of the soil, but it's pretty tough on the soil, isn't it? It's minding its own business. And these blades come and churn it up, cut it up, dig it up, rip it to shreds. Now why does the farmer do that? He does it because he's going to plant new seed and there's going to be a new harvest, verse 24. And in fact, their experience of suffering and hardship and, uh, and brokenness is going to come as Assyria sweeps around their borders and, and wraps itself around Jerusalem and causes carnage there. God is going to use it all to break up their hardened hearts. He wants to start a fresh work. He wants a new harvest. He's going to create a new people, a new believing remnant who will stop relying on, on the foolish things and rely on the solid realities of, of basing their lives on what God is doing in Christ. And the God who created this world where different crops need different methods of cultivation, uh, he knows how to bring about this harvest of a true uh, believing remnant. And all of this, verse 29, comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. It's not an easy section, is it? But what does God have to say to the Christian church in the UK? You know, we're also in this time where the Bible is being mocked and scoffed at, not only by the world, but also by those who claim to be leaders in uh, God's church. It is tragic to see the theological and moral decline of denominations like the Church of Scotland. And I feel for the loss of our friends who have been told that they must leave their buildings for standing on what the Bible has to say. This is a time where uh, some are trying to change the message of the Christian gospel. And, and there's a great pull for the church to accept and go along with all the values and views of our society. So how should we respond? Well, firstly, we should be warned. You see, scoffing at God's word starts in lots of subtle ways. It starts by losing confidence in God's words. The outward religious form is still there. We can come along Sunday by Sunday, sing songs and all the rest of it. But in reality, we can begin to lose confidence in God's word. The truth is it makes no tangible difference to the the 24-7 of the rest of our lives. Very subtle. We would be shocked if someone was saying you're scoffing at God's word, but that's the reality. That's what we're doing when we ignore what it says and choose that we can just do whatever we want. As we are seduced just to fit in with an unbelieving, godless world. Do you know that uh, liberal churches don't grow through evangelism. They don't evangelize. They don't believe they need to. Liberal churches grow because evangelicals begin to lose confidence in the Bible. And they want to change the way they live. And it's more convenient to go that way and fit in, be accepted. Be warned, Charlotte Chapel. There are churches in this city that once clearly proclaimed God's word that do so no longer. 
because they've lost confidence in it. It could happen to Charlotte Chapel. Every generation must choose whether it's going to be faithfully, humbly sitting under God's words and humbly listening to what God has to say and seeking to obey it in all of their lives. It's a choice that every generation must freshly make and then pass on to the next generation. We need to be those who all the more intently listen to God's voice in his inspired word. Listen, verse 23. Hear my voice. Pay attention. Hear what I say. You hear the pleading of God through Isaiah? Listen. God has acted in history. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will never be dismayed. Is your hope and your confidence in Christ and Christ alone? If it's not, come to him today. He'll receive you today. He'll forgive all your sins. Come to Christ. Only in coming to Christ will you be safe in the coming judgment of God. Only in Christ can you have any confidence to face all the uncertainties of this life. Rest your feet on Christ. Rest and repose in him. The best that this world has to offer is just a fading wreath, escapist pleasures that don't satisfy. They're really satisfy now and, and, and they will not save us in the end. They just end up consuming us. There is nothing more tragic than to see somebody being consumed by alcohol and drugs and see that they're absolutely ignorant to the fact that they're being eaten alive. It's the worst blindness. But for those who will build their lives on Jesus Christ, then see what it says in verse 5. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath, for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battles at the gate. See, here's a, here's a choice. Do you want the fading wreath of this shifting sands of this world? Or do you want this uh, glorious crown, a beautiful wreath that is God ruling over his people as they humbly submit to Christ? For those who rest in him, there is lasting beauty and joy and delight and security and peace and hope and eternal rest. And in all the troubles of this life, there's his Holy Spirit where we know right from wrong and know his enabling strength to keep persevering. The Lord Almighty is wonderful in counsel. He's magnificent in wisdom. How will you respond to his word today?